someone like Reagan, whenever he talked about Silicon Valley, would hold it up as this is the American dream in action. These young guys in garages changing the world. And this is what free enterprise can give you. There was very little acknowledgement of the broader state actors that helped make it happen. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. You know, at some point, really what you're doing is capital allocation. And it does not make sense to take the, the job of capital allocation away from people who have demonstrated great skill in capital allocation and give it to, you know, an entity that has demonstrated very poor skill in, in capital allocation, which is the government. That's Elon Musk talking to the Wall Street Journal about why he shouldn't be paying higher taxes. Musk's beliefs about government are pretty common in Silicon Valley where people tend to believe that innovation is driven exclusively by the free market, and that the best thing government can do is to cut red tape, lower taxes, and really just stay out of the way. But even if that's widely regarded as gospel among tech people, it's far from accurate. Margaret O'Mara is a professor of American history at the University of Washington and the author of The Code. And in her telling of the Valley's history, Technological innovation has always been the result of a symbiotic relationship between entrepreneurs and the government. The idea that the government is an obstacle to innovation is just one of the many myths about the Valley that she debunks in her book. Margaret and I cover a lot of ground here, more than 80 years of history. But running through it all is a sense that we've been here before. The debate about government regulation, the influence of geopolitics on technology, the utopian rhetoric around things like Web3 are all things that have historical precedents. And there's a lot to be gained from peering back in time and seeing how we grappled with them 60 or 70 years ago. In fact, the best way forward might actually be to spend some time reflecting on the past. Here's my conversation with Margaret O'Mara. I was noticing, I was watching some of the press around this book, and it seems like you gave a lot of talks to VCs and in Silicon Valley. Um, and I'm wondering how they react to the to the narrative you lay out in this project. Well, it's it's interesting because there's not a lot of broader understanding of the longer and wider history. When I started studying the history of Silicon Valley, which was you know, <laughs> 20 years ago, I would get a lot of pushback to my, you know, talking about the longer history of public spending and the role of government. And um, it's been a very entrepreneurial story. It's been one in which many in the Valley consider this the ultimate example of free market capitalism in action, American capitalism with few strings attached. And the what I really wanted to do in this book was show that it was a yes and story, that it was neither a story of freewheeling entrepreneurs with no government in sight, nor was it one of government doing it all. It was a really distinctively distinctive combination that the United States does and has done throughout its history because we we fear actually having big government, obviously big government, even though we build very big government down here. Um, and from 1789 forward, from the age of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, the U.S. has grown its state by subsidizing private industry in many instances, whether you're building canals and railroads in the 19th century or building 
internet industries in the 20th and 21st. It's a very similar model. So I think that there's a um, a recognition that there's a bigger a bigger story here. Yeah, I, like I couldn't agree more. I'm, one of the mythologies that emerges from Silicon Valley isn't just that they're separate from the state. It's that the state mm-hmm. itself hinders the kind of development they do. It's like antagonistic to the state. And yet it is intertwined, as intertwined, as you say, as the railways were and the aerospace industry was. They are as intertwined and a function of exactly that connection that you just mentioned. But they are antagonistic to it. Like, what, what's the origin of that? Yeah. Well, you know, business, uh, all types of business and business leaders are, you know, will be quick to say, oh, the regulations get in our way, the taxes get in our way. That's a, but, that binary. But is- Boeing doesn't claim it's like totally separate from the state, right? Like they, they kind of own a bit of that. Yeah. And, and I think tech is really interesting and in that so much of its definition of its, of itself is building these companies and defining them as something different than the typical corporate America. And you see this from the very beginning where Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett establish HP and they talk starting in the 50s about, you know, management by wandering around and and we don't have corner offices and we don't wear we have a much more egalitarian atmosphere and it was really um very consciously separating themselves as a different kind of kinder gentler capitalism. Uh, and this continues through generation after generation of companies. And, and in differentiating themselves, they're also saying, you know, we are, we do what we do because the government gets out of the way. And in the case of tech, I think a good shorthand of the American technology industry is yes, indeed, the government got out of the way, but first it sent a heap of resources in, in the industry's direction. First in, terms of, you know, spending on research and education and being a customer for these high-tech projects. But even in the last 40 years, where the there isn't so much obvious defense work, although there's quite a bit these days, but it, even when that is not quite as central to the story, you have tax policy and regulatory policy that is you know, that is state action too. Deregulation, the choice not to make a certain group of industries adhere to something like, you know, the the the, the very loosely regulated internet, you know, social media economy that the United States allowed to, to flourish. That was a policy choice. That was government action. I mean, that's what's fascinating, though, right? Because like Section 230, for example, like is an act of state regulation that yeah. empowered tech, didn't disempower them, right? Like it gave them a platform on which to grow. Um, via state regulation, right? Absolutely, and it was one done with the with tech interests and industries lobbying for that. <laughs> they had a they had a hand in its creation. They've not been passive actors. That's the other mythos mm-hmm. that the industry has cultivated: is that we we don't really care about politics, and we just you know stay away from Washington, and it doesn't matter to us. And mm, I don't, you know, there are plenty of instances of tech executives and venture capitalists going to. Capitol Hill and going to the White House and working very hard to make sure that the landscape policy landscape is working in their favor. I mean, going back a bit further, I mean, I was wondering, reading through that, um, the history of the Cold War spending into tech, whether 
some of this was an ex- might have been an explicit strategy by the government to look distant from it. So if you're if you're trying to show that you're different than the Soviet Union, this big statist enterprise, the last thing you want to do is show you're building up a statist industrial complex as well. And yet you know you need state funding. So what do you do? You put it to universities, you give it to corporations in different ways, and you kind of propagate this entrepreneurial mythology yourself. Is that part of this too? Was that like an ideological play by the US government as well? Yeah, bingo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's this is all revving up and going into overdrive in the 1950s, the age of McCarthyism, the age when the US is defining itself against Soviet socialism and collectivist enterprise is very much out of style. And so spending a lot, but doing it indirectly, the money flows. Yes, there are, there's the buildup of federal research, federally controlled research entities, but more significantly, there's a lot of money to private industry, defense contractors, And then there's a lot of money that flows to research universities, public and private. There's a transformation in the relationship between higher education and the U.S. government around 1950. It's not just the GI Bill, which is sending many, many thousands, ultimately millions of veterans to college, but it is also money flowing into science and technology programs and building out science and technology programs. And so much of this growth happens under the watch of Dwight Eisenhower, who was a small government conservative and was so disquieted by, exactly as you put it, like understood, he was a military man, he understood the geopolitical stakes, the need for it. There was also an an economic uh, reason for it too. All of this spending, this was Keynesianism in action. This was uh, uh, the last thing the U.S., wanted to do was go back to the Great Depression. And there was an understanding among presidents and their economic advisors that the thing that got the U.S. out of the Depression was not only the spending of the New Deal in the 1930s, but particularly World War II. So defense spending as an engine of job creation, economic growth, regional redistribution of of jobs and economic activity. It grew the Sun Belt in the West and whole whole parts of the United States that were not industrial became more industrialized thanks to defense. And and still is obviously as you as you mentioned. And I mean I'm just stuck on this tension between support and benefiting from and antagonism too. And I because it comes up mm-hmm. repeatedly in different moments. And I feel mm-hmm. like we're in one again now when you look at like people like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk who have like not just antagonism to the state, but like uh, an aggression and a deeply um, ideological or libertarian view of themselves that is very distant from the reality of their businesses, which are both. I mean, Palantir is a 90% of its revenue comes from the national security state. And mm-hmm. Tesla's supported through subsidies, and SpaceX is a contractor for the government. I mean, how do you explain that, the starkness of that disconnect now? <laughs> I know. I know. It's really stark. Well, I think it. I think it's building on kind of a half century plus of, again, a cognitive dissonance that is very deeply, deeply held, where you have, um, you know, it's, it's not just techno-libertarianism, which is let's have as little government as possible. But it's also, I think, if we really dig down into what is the 
what are the politics of the valley? If you know, first of all, the valley, the, the industry contains multitudes. There are people who are liberal, people who are conservative, all sorts of things. But there is, I think, the the kind of shared faith in the power of technology. And the power of technologists as just basically smarter than everyone else. It's um, it's somewhat anti-democratic impulse, quite frankly, uh, even though a lot of the rhetoric, not necessarily from people like Teal and Musk, but from the broader kind of rhetoric of we're making the world a better place and connecting the world, and this is inherently good. And um, But it is predicated on a notion that this is a very intellectually privileged group of very, very smart people who've spent their whole lives being somewhat either, you know, intellectually exceptional or identified as such. Uh, and they've been extremely successful in business, and that's reinforced their sense of, I've got it going on. And it's a very, even though the real story of the tech industry is one that involves many, many people with many different skill sets, it is still one, a place that then and now really sees engineers as the smartest people in the room. And and engineering thinking has this linearity to it. You know, writing good code is a very, you want clean code. You know, you want to get from A to B as efficiently as possible. And the mess of the real world and politics is often antithetical to that. Well, it either works or it doesn't too, right? Like it's not only linear, but it progresses and it's it goes in one direction and it gets better it's or binary. worse. Yeah, yeah. And and these are yeah, these are deeply held. So yeah, it's it, and look, Americans have been very good, whether it be politicians like Ronald Reagan, who as president oversaw the uh, an enlargement in military spending that had a lot of sent a lot of money to not a, not just the tech industry but to computer science in particular because of so much of what the 1980s military buildup involved things like the strategic defense initiative which was a very elaborate missile defense shield that involved a lot of supercomputing yeah. um, never came into named <laughs> never came to pass but yeah. put a lot of money in but even someone like Reagan who knew very well this this relationship the symbiotic relationship between the public and private would talk whenever he talked about silicon valley would hold it up as this this is free market entrepreneurs you know american the american dream in action these young guys in garages changing the world and this is what free enterprise can give you this is entrepreneurial capitalism there was very little acknowledgement of the broader state actors that helped make it happen. Yeah. And and yet that's another disconnect or tension that runs through this whole history is that um the politicization of Silicon Valley by Reagan, Clinton, Obama, Bush, Bush. <laughs> I mean they all saw this as like a powerful political space. Yeah. And yet the narrative and myth in Silicon Valley that they were apolitical and that Connecting people, like you say, was an apolitical act. That that in enough that's just a, a good, a, a sort of universal good, not an act with political consequence or with politics embedded mm-hmm. in it. So that's another tension that kind of sits through this history as well. It does. It's this. It's this not wanting to take sides. You know, yeah. we're we're eliminating gatekeepers. We're creating the free flow of information. We're going to let people decide for themselves whether it's good or bad. And rather than telling them what to think, telling them that's the way it is, like Walter Cronkite used to do on the CBS Evening News, instead we're just going to give you everything and open it up. And the you know it, there's a kind of earnest optimism that fuels that in the beginning. And I I think this idea 
this particular variety of that idea has its roots in the late 60s and 1970s with the group of, kind of baby boom era, Vietnam War era young people who start tinkering around with personal computers and start talking about the idea of putting a computer on every desk and connecting them through wires. And that's going to be the way to achieve all of the goals of of the new left of the 1960s, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get to the dream that way. And it's very, it's very techno optimistic and presumes that connecting people will bring only good. And, and, and it's brought a lot of good. It, it's, it's also <laughs> when you put all of humanity online, the good, bad and the ugly all come out. And when you put them in an algorithmically mediated environment in, in platforms that are, that are intended to grow as quickly as possible and monetize data as, as much as possible, then then it becomes an information environment that can privilege the angriest voices and the loudest voices in the room. And that's, we've seen that <laughs> proliferate. Of course, but yeah. it, it comes it comes from a kind of interesting, again, I, I, you know, you can't delink any of this stuff from a broader history. It's the history of a generation disillusioned by American leadership because of how the war in Vietnam went, dis- disillusioned by Watergate and Nixon, um, a loss of faith in institutions, big business, big government, big everything, and trying to craft a new world that was a kind of small is beautiful, entrepreneurial, everyone's got a voice. But that, again, not taking sides. And we're seeing now these companies have enormous power and are being asked to make political choices and and have because they have great influence yeah i I mean i teach a class on media media and politics and digital technology and politics and i always in week one we always read the like declaration of cyberspace like the perry barlow's thing (laughs) and like it's like it's a a remarkable document for what it captures um but the i mean one the idea that that is not a political statement is Absurd. I mean, that is as political <laughs> mm-hmm. a manifesto as one can imagine. But what I don't think I fully realized in, in, until reading the way you connect this history and the previous era is that it seems to me that they, yes, they wanted to build personal computers to empower users. And that was like in opposition in some ways to the way computers had been centralized before uh, in industry and mm-hmm. the state. But it seems to me they also saw the power of those computers through the war, right? Like they saw how powerful these mainframes were and the destruction really. And so they, that gave them this like ideology against the war and against the state, but also drove their desire to bring them to more people because they just saw how powerful they fundamentally were. And it, I don't know, mm-hmm. I thought it was a really interesting transition in, in that very sort of niche group of people who saw both the 50s war yeah. use and then the transition to personal computers. Like they, they seem like a very particular bunch there. They are a very particular bunch. And it is an extraordinary sort of generational story. I mean, the irony, of course, is that the the baby boom generation, the young people that are going to places like Berkeley and Stanford in the late '60s, um, particularly those who are going to a public university like Berkeley, they are they are beneficiaries, directly beneficiaries of this huge public wave of Cold War spending that is not just spending on uh, on defense, uh, but it's also building those computer labs at universities. It's subsidizing. 
uh, both federal and state spending that's subsidizing higher education so that back then one could go to Berkeley for $50 a semester effectively. And they're exposed to computing in college. They, at the same time, they're you know, marching out of the computer lab onto the plaza to protest the war, seeing that, you know, the the power of computers, what they can do, and and f- so frustrated that all of that power is contained in the computer labs of the establishment and being used, so much of it being used to wage war. Uh, and then they graduate, they don't have much debt because they had this very um, low cost higher education and and they don't want to work in defense contracting. So they end up going to, and this is in the early 70s, that's why you see all of these extraordinary people go to places like Xerox Park, which is the research lab in Palo Alto that the Xerox Corporation sets up. Um, it, you know, and they're also and they're also kicking around in garages, playing with, you know, building their own motherboards and <laughs> building their own personal computers. So they have this economic freedom as well as political they've been you know they've been transformed by what they've what they've seen and they've done of course it doesn't take that long for this movement the personal computer movement this idea that we're going to find these machines can be empowering and um and and change education and all those do-goodery things in the span of about mm, 48 months it's turned into a personal computer industry they're starting to sell and market them and of course a few of these garage entrepreneurs um, very early on uh set their sights on becoming quite big and and most notably steve jobs who knew in 1976 that they were going to get out of the garage this wasn't just a movement this was a big deal yeah, but to do so in a slightly different way than sort of Bill Gates was at the time too, who I think probably had more mm-hmm. of that large-scale industrial idea right from the beginning. Yeah, um, Bill Gates never styled himself quite as much of a countercultural guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was, but it's it's so um, Gates was interesting and distinctive, and in that what he and Paul Allen were doing, where they were building something to sell that previously had been given away for free, which was the software that goes with the computer. So in the old days of IBM and the mainframe computing, the the companies would just send along the software along with when you when you lease the giant computer, the software and the services kind of come along with part of your purchase price. There wasn't a standalone software industry per se. Um, and and what and certainly not for personal computing, where all of these early personal computer evangelists, they were hardware guys. And if you were really serious, you, you know, knew how to write your own operating system or write your own apps. And then you also shared the code, you swapped it. So they had these newsletters where they just write out, like, here's how you program. And shared it for free. Shared it for free. And Gates and Allen were selling it. And and so that I mean this is the beginning of the the ongoing war between proprietary and open source software that go continues to this day. Another thing that kind of struck me in this evolution from moments where there was large-scale state funding versus moments where the markets provided a lot of the capital influx. Um, In the dot-com boom, you see the government sort of step back a little bit and a VC culture emerge. And it then the government sort of comes back in at various times. And it feels like now maybe we're back in one of those VC moments. But I'm wondering if, if that's right, if you have these kind of waves of government influx of cash 
versus the market doing it? And if that's the case, do they build different things when the source of the money is different? Mm. Like does VC does a VC funded company build something different than a state funded industry? Well, I would call it generational and I would say that they kind of grow side by side and maybe the two kind of wax and wane. So you start in the 50s and 60s with miniaturized electronics, um, transistorized electronics, semiconductors, silicon semiconductors, integrated circuits. This is the genesis of the high-tech VC industry, sort of starting in the late 50s and early 60s. It's very small, but they're taking advantage of the fact that the government is pumping all this money into things like integrated circuits, for example, which the market was effectively created in large part by the Apollo program. (laughs) You know, John Kennedy declares we shall reach the moon by the end of the 1960s, and all of a sudden there's this intense demand from NASA for these very bespoke, very, very expensive devices manufactured by a handful of companies in this one place. It wasn't even called Silicon Valley yet, but this is these are the companies that put the silicon in Silicon Valley. And these are companies that are the granddaddies of every venture-backed startup since, notably Fairchild Semiconductor, which is incorporated in the fall of 1957, conveniently only a couple weeks before the Soviets send Sputnik into orbit, thereby um, prompting the Eisenhower administration to, if, if Dwight Eisenhower had hair, it would have lit on fire. They were <laughs> so freaked out by by the, the fact that the Soviets had beat the U.S. into space. So there's a huge demand created. But VCs are there identifying companies that can grow and then meet this new demand. Then you go into the 70s, you start seeing, you know, the defense spending in the United States goes down after Vietnam. The markets, the public markets are stinking it up in the early 70s. VCs cannot raise funds. There's a lean lean days. And then that turns around in the late 70s and early 80s with both the growth, further growth of the semiconductor industry and particularly the personal computer industry. So the IPO of, of Apple in late 1980, which comes only two months after the IPO of the first big biotech company, Genentech, uh, those things wake up Wall Street to these new generation industries. And all of a sudden, the markets are very, very go-go for both of these technologies. And does the state step back a bit in some ways when the market kicks in? Or, is, or what's the relationship there? Yeah, but it's not quite now. I mean, there's there's defense spending kind of happens, waxes and wanes independent of um, but the market, there's an interesting, again, it's this fascinating kind of perfect storm of geopolitics, domestic politics, technological inflection points. You know, we get by the late 70s, chips have miniaturized enough that you have these very, very small circuitry that you can essentially build a board around, put in a wooden box and call it a personal computer, which is essentially what the Apple one was. It looked like the Steves had made it in shop class. It was it was kind of really sweet, home, very homebrewed machine. Um, but you've finally have gotten to a point where there could actually, this could become a consumer product. This And that's a real turning point, right? So you have enterprise hardware before the 1980s. The things that Silicon Valley sells are selling to other companies. It's kind of this mysterious, you know, an average consumer doesn't really know what these products are because they, you might have a microchip in your car, even in the 1970s, but you don't know that it's there. And then in the early 80s, you have not only these personal computer companies, there's, you know, Atari and, you know, Pong and, and, 
uh, all these, uh, you know, the young kids kind of getting hooked on video games. And, you know, the other thing that's really important to remember is <laughs> think about the late 70s, early 80s, North American manufacturing economy. It's not great. <laughs> this is a time of factory closure. And it's really bad news stories. Um, when I was researching, I went on sabbatical and, and went down to Stanford. One of the perks we had um, was we could order books from the Stanford libraries. And so I offered, I, I ordered up, and I think the librarians are still mad at me seven years later, um, all of the bound copies of Business Week magazine from like 1978 to 1981, wow. <laughs> just to page through the physical yeah. copies and see what the business zeitgeist was in the U.S. Pretty dark. It, it was really dark. It was a lot of... Um, a lot of bad news. And then you get to the section that was called information processing, which was where computer hardware and software was. And it was all California sunshine and pool parties right. and rainbows and growth. So you see this, you know, you can see why politicians of both parties got really, really excited about these industries. And and also and we're working hard to both Democrats and Republicans to cut capital gains taxes, because that's what the venture capitalists were arguing they needed to encourage more risk capital investment in these industries. You mentioned the the confluence of a geopolitical moment, a domestic political moment, and a tech inflection mm -hmm. um, being a spur for some sort of intersection between the state and, and, yeah. and the industry here. And I wonder if we have all three of those now again. If you if China, maybe Russia, plus some of the political consequences we've seen of the current state of technologies domestically plus the emergence of like large-scale computing again in terms of machine learning, cloud storage, quantum computing. Like these are these aren't personal computing <laughs> enterprises. These are large-scale industrial mm -hmm. projects that might be aligned with geopolitical and domestic interests as well. Like do you, do you see the transition back to that kind of industrial development? I, yeah, I think this is a really interesting, I mean, this is an interesting moment on many levels, but it is so interesting to see, you know, I think we're at a moment that is both underscoring how powerful the largest technology companies have become. But at the same time, we're also seeing the, the enduring power of the state that ultimately the real decider at the end of the day remain nation states, um, choices to impose sanctions, choices to, um, I think cryptocurrency is a great example of, of a whole system that whose proponents have really underscored as this is a, you know, this is a, a escape from the finan global financial system, so to speak. It's an opportunity for small scale investors. It's an opportunity to release the, the bounds of the, of nation state rules and regulations. But ultimately, you know, if you are, say, a, a Russian oligarch trying to, you know, you're going to go long on crypto. Um, you sure can. You can keep on buying that up even despite all these sanctions, but you have to, you gotta hold it because the only way you, you can't trade it for dollars. Like there's sort of this, and regulatory reality is setting in on, um, you know, decentralized finance and these new kind of wild west of alternatives. But I think you're right in that we're in this really interesting moment where, um, and really, it, it's always, I think this has been a constant, it's just more obvious at different moments where you have, you know, what is shaping the growth of the technology industry, big and small, it is, um, you know, American, it, for these American 
based companies, American domestic politics is a shaper, the willingness of the U.S. to invest in basic research and put their thumb on the scale for to encourage the growth of certain types of markets. In the 50s, it was electronics, and particularly miniaturized electronics. Um, now, I would, you know, if I were advising Joe Biden and he was going to do everything I told him to do. <laughs> Neither of those things would happen. But, you know, I think there's an opportunity with en energy transition and and further doubling down and in investing on climate-related technologies because the market's not going to be able to do that, have the inclination, the ability, or the resources to do it on their own. I think it's interesting to think about, are we at a similar inflection point as, you know, the transistor, 1947, co-invented in 1947, that was like the steam engine, right? It set off this entirely new thing. You know, I think everyone's now looking for the next steam engine. Is it AI? Is it ML? Is it uh, just a better battery for an electric vehicle? <laughs> what is the thing? Um, and there's also, you know, companies are trying to position things as the next big thing. Um, is it Web3? Is it, uh, is it the metaverse, which I, at the moment, seems like just an exercise in branding? Again, I'm a historian. I look backwards, not forwards. But I'm really curious to see where or what that inflection, technological inflection point, where it lands and what it is, because it's not quite legible to me which of these things is going I, I love the framing of this being a, a technological inflection point. And I think yet again, like some of the previous moments you've talked about, you do have these two tech ideas in tension with one another, that mm -hmm. um, quantum computing and machine learning and large-scale AI are big industrial practices that require huge capital and even the metaverse. I mean, the reason Facebook can do the metaverse is because they're going to spend $20 billion on it. And it's a big yeah. project and it's, it's highly centralized. And you have that sitting in parallel with all the Web3 rhetoric and innovation that's happening that mm -hmm. is espousing a very mm -hmm. different idea of... So how, how do yeah. you see those two things sitting side by side? <laughs> um. Well, it doesn't surprise me that they sit side by side. Yeah, because, because it's happened before. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it's yeah. this fundamental tension yeah. that's that's characterized Silicon Valley from the very beginning, which is it has been a place created by, defined by bigness, whether it was big government, big companies. You know, the biggest employer in Silicon Valley from the mid-50s through the end of the 80s was Lockheed the defense contractor. But there's been bigness and even big capital. Like the first VC funds were funded by Rockefeller money and Whitney money, like old Gilded Age money. <laughs> and uh, th that, that is, that's been there ever, uh, always. But it has had this small is beautiful, um, we're different, more, more agile, we're more entrepreneurial from, from the very beginning, even before the countercultural days of the 60s, where Again, go back to Bill and, and, and Dave, the Hewlett Packard. Like they're like, we're, we're just a, we want to have the ethos of the engineering lab, not of the big corporation. You know, there's this really interesting, real dislike of and, and, and unwillingness to acknowledge bigness. And, and, and I think in terms of the consumers and users of tech too. The tech, you know, we we are disquieted by how big these companies have become. And they are extraordinarily large and highly capitalized. We do have the richest people in the history of the planet and some of the most the largest you know, companies in the, the biggest market yeah, caps <laughs> the market's ever seen. It, it's it's okay to be disquieted, but you're exactly right. The tech where the technology 
is going. And I Web3, I'm, again, I'm very curious to see where that evolves. I see why that, I see the, the philosophy animating it is very familiar. It's the philosophy that was behind the personal computer movement, that was behind the early days of the internet. I mean, I wonder if you mentioned the sort of crypto space and, and Russia here, and I, we had a similar situation in Canada with this trucker, these truckers protests recently, mm-hmm. where, I mean, the federal government essentially used the most powerful piece of legislation it has, which is this kind of Federal Emergencies Act, in large part to stop the money flowing into Canada through these various crypto funds. So I think you're, some of these new technologies that sit within this Web3 ecosystem could sort of manifest as being deeply antagonistic to the state and threatening to the state. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, and the ideological origins of crypto come from an ex- extraordinarily anti-statist, yeah. not, you know, techno-libertarianism, but also inflected with, you know, the control of the, of the money has, has been something that's been a, you know, populist goal since, <laughs> since the days of the, 1880s and the, you know, the Grange and William Jennings Bryan and, you know, cross of gold and free silver is sort of argument over how do you increase the money supply so the little guy has a piece? That's really what it is. And how do you, but the, here's the irony is that that movement, um, if we go back to the 19th century, why are the farmers and the small business people of um, the Great Plains of the United States so up in arms or up in pitchforks about about this um, and and wanting to change monetary policy and practice. It's because of this mo- mostly unregulated ba- banking system where there isn't a Federal Reserve, where there are very little banking rules, and where there's incredible volatility in the market that is slamming small farmers. So that's a sort of interesting kind of this question of crypto's allure is its unregulated nature. But you kind of have to regulate it in order to protect those who are part of participating in that economy, including and especially the the little guys. The retail investors, right? Who are yeah. Yeah. I'm bemused, you know, the thing that worries me, um, or I'm just I'm, what makes me so curious about the larger Web3 evangelism is that many of the loudest voices and evangelists are people who are very, um, very wealthy, <laughs> people who already have done very well in the tech industry. They're prominent venture capitalists and others. And oftentimes the new technologies, the new disruptive ideas have come from the fringe by the people who were not part of the system. Uh, and that's not to say that the people with who've been successful can't have good ideas, but I wonder about... I'm confused by the end game here. Like who's going to make money at the end of the day and how can the system be something where there's something productive comes out of that productive technologies come out of it as well as systems of access and finance. I mean, it seems that seems to be another theme that consistently emerges through, through this history is the empowerment of the outsider and the little guy Um, at the same time is behind the scenes. There seems to always be large scale institutional people benefiting from this. I mean, the establishment has never been very far away from Silicon Valley, frankly. Yeah. And it, and it can be very, um, it can work in both productive and less productive ways. Um, I've spent a lot of time talking to octogenarian venture capitalists when I was writing my book, which was lovely. um, And really, um, I learned so much from them. But one of the things that I 
was struck, really struck by was how almost to a person or to a man, they were all white men, that's, um, but they were from pretty humble backgrounds. They were scholarship kids. They were small town boys from Iowa and South Carolina and Texas. They worked their way through college. They ended up in California because they didn't have family connections and didn't have resources. They came out to take advantage of an opportunity. All they had was a, you know, good engineering degree and a work ethic. And then they end up, you know, very doing very, very well. And that is something that that's another dimension of the story where they're, you know, when you do have these big institutions with resources, they can provide a foundation for individuals to have a extraordinary economic and, and other opportunities um, to, to realize their potential, so to speak, but they can't do it alone. The pull yourself up by your bootstraps, is a American myth that's very corrosive. There are very, very few truly self-made people. And, and it also was one, if you look back to the 50s and 60s, of course, the beneficiaries of that great wave of spending were overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly male, native-born, white Americans. And that, you know, it is one thing that's contributed to a continuing homogeneity of the industry at its higher levels and investment class to this day, it's kind of replicated itself um, in ways that I think ultimately are, are are not good, not just bad for society, but it's also kind of ultimately the good ideas are become limited when you only have a rather narrow demographic producing them. Just to, to close here, I had one sort of slightly different thought to run by you. That I mean, you mentioned this quote by Steve Jobs that says, when, when we invented the personal computer, we created a new kind of bicycle. And, and part of what he's getting at here is that we, they were inventing something that were improving our cognitive capacity. Like they, were, they were making our mind better, and they were making life easier in a way. They were replacing mundane tasks. They were helping us do things we couldn't otherwise do. And I, I recently um, spoke to Johan Hari, who has this book about the attention crisis we're currently in. So that's been really on my mind lately. And there's a pretty convincing school of thought that like computers are not are making us dumber now, not smarter. I mean, they're, they're taking something from us, not being additive to our capacities. And I, I wonder if, if you think that is a transition and whether what we can look to now to kind of get some of that back, to have these these technologies work mm. for us. And is there anything from history that tells us how we can create those incentives properly to realign them yeah. with human <laughs> interests? I would love that too. I mean, I, you know, I we all suffer from what Alvin Toffler memorably labeled information overload. And that was in 1970. So this is not a, you know, a new phenomenon, kind of the dizzying onslaught of new media and things designed to capture the mind's attention, um, which the television age was already freaking people out by the, its ability to do that. And in 1970, and now in the 2020s, we're like, holy cow, they didn't even know the half of it. Um, yeah, I think there's, you know, what, when does it, how do, how do we get it back? That's a great question. Um, I think that the next technological challenge is both to make our interface with screens more um, harmonious and 
um, measured in terms of keeping pace with the pace of the human neurons ability to process things and helping restore our attention. Um, and uh, yeah, so slowing, slowing things down a bit. Uh, and it, it, the, you know, the challenge is, is that the, um, high intensity, high engagement model is the most lucrative model. You know, one of the, the Silicon Valley or the tech industry, the habit is to say, well, there must be better tech for that. There must be an app for that. We need to develop better technology. And I think even big tech's critics, um, lawmakers in the United States who want to regulate it, they still will say, you know, can't you just fix the Facebook algorithm so the news feed's better? And I would push back and say, well, maybe there's not a technological fix. It's, it's a human fix, too. It's also, um, you know, one reason that we we are drawn so much to screens is not, well, certainly in the last two years of the COVID-19 pandemic out of necessity. But also, you know, I think I found myself on social media more um, in the last two years, uh, in part because it was, we didn't have other ways of human connection and contact. And one of the great success of these social platforms has been in part because in so many places around the world, there have been, you know, diminished ties, community ties, supports, um, people are more mobile, people are displaced, uh, there is less economic security, social security broadly defined. And those, the absence of those things have created a, you know, human needs that need to be met and have been met through some of these platforms. So I think there's a whole world solution there that's not just technology. It's not an easy, an easy fix. I wish I had this like, oh, there's an app for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it'll, I, I, I have, I'm intrigued to see what happens next because in 10 years, we, this conversation will be very different. Um, but we don't know what kind of different, but we will have different platforms and products that are at the forefront of our consciousness and maybe they'll be designed differently. Who knows? Yeah. And may maybe pausing a bit and slowing down and looking at how we've developed previous technologies helps us <laughs> think mm -hmm. a little bit more carefully about the next thing we build. So, yeah. I mean, thank yeah. you for doing that. <laughs> oh, it was great talking to you. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed being here. That was my conversation with Margaret O'Mara. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Hunsberger, Javi Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Abi Raheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week.